right, all right, all right. I'm Joe Turner. I'm the host of City Manager Unfiltered, a podcast by a city manager for city managers and other public sector executives. And with me today is Benjamin Effinger. He's uh, with LA County. Uh, ben, why don't you uh, tell us what you're what you're doing with LA County right now? Absolutely. So uh, I've been with LA County for about ten years now, but my current job is. Uh, working in their treasury management operation for the treasurer and tax collector. I oversee our daily cash flow and positioning for the county, which has, you know, operating budget in excess of $40 billion. And uh, our excess money then gets invested in our treasury pool. That's, you know, about 55 billion plus on a daily basis. We got a lot of money moving and it's an important job that half the time I can't believe that I fell into position to have. Well, you know, I, I was actually going to ask this. I didn't know, know that aspect about your your background. You know, with the re- recent increase in interest rates, have you seen anything interesting change with how you handle that excess cash flow or cash on hand over the last year or so? Yeah, we're actually um, it, it, the, with the feds, you know, chiming in and, and having points and, and the different things that they're doing. You know, we've been investing a lot more short term money. Um, We've been doing a lot of daily uh, investments, you know, short-term paper, you know, theoretically we want to invest three-year, five-year, you know, eventually some 10-year, you know, some buy and hold. Our our strategy is really to ride the wave, not to, you know, short sell or take a loss or or try to get in while it's high. We try to buy and hold and let everything kind of work its way out. But we've seen some historic interest rates, you know, in the treasury pool this last probably 18 months to two years where we've been averaging, you know, above a 3% return, in some cases, 5% returns on some of our, our investments. And, you know, those don't sound like big percentages, but when we're talking about investing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars at a clip, you know, that turns into quite a substantial amount of pocket change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when interest rates were so low. I mean, you had, you had municipalities all across the country that were literally, I mean, in my little town, we were getting point zero five percent i mean you you invest a million dollars you're getting like you know five eight hundred five eight hundred bucks a year on a million bucks so with the recent change in interest rates i know it's impacted a lot of balance sheets to the positive in that regard but um be, before we get to a sort of a discussion uh, I, you have a military background we're going to talk about some of that that aspect of your background and and how it plays in the public sector can you give us a little bit of a rundown of where you come from how you got into the public sector so forth and so on yeah, we'll we'll try to speed through this so that way we don't eat up the whole podcast. I'm talking about my <laughs> background. Um, I was born and raised in northern Wisconsin. Uh, my grandparents were dairy farmers, so um, that's pretty much where I learned, learned my uh, work ethic and you know, baling hay and milking cows and all the kind of good stuff. And then uh, we moved to the Twin Cities when I was in high school. Did high school in uh, in the suburban east area of uh, St. Paul. I went to Woodbury High School. Uh, when I graduated from high school, there weren't a lot of options on the table. My family being farmers and factory workers, you know, scholarship money wasn't available. And uh, really, there there just wasn't a path right into school right away. So the military became a good option because I knew I wanted to go to school eventually. I just didn't know how it was going to happen. So uh, I enlisted in the Air Force, left nine days after I graduated from high school, went to basic training, did eight years in the Air Force. I was a military police officer by trade. uh, So a lot of cop skills, uh, did nuclear security, presidential security, criminal investigations, uh, a bunch of different stuff. Started my career off two years in uh, Minot, North Dakota, then pivoted out to Andrews Air Force Base, Maryland. That's where I got to do my uh, Air Force One duties and, and really got to see and do a lot of a lot of cool things, but, but all the while taking advantage of the education benefits that the Air Force had to offer. Um, I did my, my whole bachelor's degree while I was on active duty during that eight years. 
paying for it with the, the tuition assistance that's available for active duty folks. So when I separated after eight years, got out not only with eight years of experience as a cop, but also a bachelor's degree under my belt. So I was kind of set for that that transition. Uh, where I got to that transition point was, uh, you know, I, I had drawn a set of orders to take another squad back to Iraq in, in 20, 20, 2009, I believe it was. And, you know, I had been there already once, you know, I'd had some friends that went and did convoy operations and one of them got rocked by an IED and just, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the same look and feel. And uh, it was okay when it was me. It was okay when it was me and my wife. But once my my older boy came around, you know, I kind of changed the tide for me. So we made absolutely family decision to, to separate. And, and when I separated from, from active duty, already having my bachelor's degree, I, I really got to sit down and kind of figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I took a, took a nice little transitional step into a, a local community college in, in the Maryland area, became the security director for a regional community college while I got my master's degree in public administration. And that was my, my jumping off point. Um, we did a coast to coast move two years, uh, two years out of being out of the military uh, in 2012 to move to Southern California, be closer to my in-laws. My father-in-law had gotten sick and we wanted to be closer to be supportive for family. And, uh, and my golden opportunity opened to uh, become a part of Los Angeles County. And that's been my history since. Awesome. Awesome. Let's back up for a second. Cause you know, you're taking the uh, bachelor's in while you're in, while you're enlisted. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot that do take advantage of that opportunity, but I also feel like there's probably quite a few individuals in the military who really kind of, uh, uh, they don't take advantage of the opportunity and they really waste that time when they could be preparing themselves for life after the military. Right. How, how hard, how hard or difficult was it for you to get your bachelor's while you were in the military? You know, I, I started off taking classes when I was in Minot, North Dakota, right? And I went to Minot State University, a brick and mortar school, and was trying to juggle it in as, you know, actually attending classes while working full time. And, you know, I took two classes, was relatively successful, but quickly realized that, you know, probably doing brick and mortar school while being in the military was probably not going to work out. So I quickly pivoted to online education through American Military University just because it was a lot more flexible and was able to travel with me. Uh, you hit on a great point, though. You know, you get when I was in, and again, take this with a grain of salt because this is you know 15 years ago or so. Um, we got $4,500 a year as tuition assistance. That was you know free money that was on the table. And at the time, I think my courses were like 750 a clip. So you can take what six eight courses a year for free on the the DoD's dime. So I was just chipping away constantly, taking you know year after year, maxing out the, the number of courses I could take. And before I knew it, you know, I had finished 120 credits and had a degree under my belt. I think that's the thing that impresses me about you, Ben. You know, this is we haven't really had much personal interaction, obviously, because we met on LinkedIn. It's it's all a virtual digital landscape. Right. And, uh, you know, you post regularly about your journey because you're currently uh, in pursuit of your doctorate. And when I see you posting on LinkedIn, it's not like, hey, look at me. I'm this big shot getting my doctorate. It's more of you just saying, hey, I'm on the grind. I'm working this through. I'm committed to bettering myself. I'm committing, committed to providing a better life to my family. And you show this work ethic and you show this commitment and hard work. And so I find that really impressive and inspirational from my standpoint when I observe you, because I know you're up early and I know you have these family commitments and whatnot. And we're going to get into the doctorate journey in a minute because it's pretty impressive. But do you chalk that up to that dairy farm lifestyle, which is hard living or like, I mean, because I, you, 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 I mean, you, you're not slacking, brother. You're not slacking at all. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. And, and uh, you know, it's really what, what I'm, 
attempting to do is just proof positive that it can be done, right? No matter what our circumstances are, if we have a goal that's attainable. And uh, really for myself, you know, I know what I didn't have or what opportunities weren't available to me on the, the path that was prescribed for me. And it's not that, you know, I couldn't go out and make it for myself. It's just, you know, coming out of you know, a working family and, and not a clear path to college being available to me, I had to go out and kind of figure that out for myself and, and hustle and grind to do it. And that has really led me into, you know, continuing this pursuit. You know, I'm also a competitive individual. My wife just finished her doctorate uh, through Azusa Pacific University this, this last year. So uh, she beat me to the finish line, but uh, we're just trying to show our kids, you know, what, what, what success can potentially look like, right? It doesn't have to be one clearly defined path of what success can look like. For me, success, you know, was eight years of going into the military, then pivoting to, you know, a a non-government job for a couple of years, then getting into a government job all the while, you know, there was a, you know, almost a 10 year gap between me doing my master's degree and, and starting my doctorate. And it doesn't mean that just because you stop that you can't pick it up again. You've just got to find that life cycle balance to be able to put it together. Right. I had about a 10 year gap between my master's and my bachelor's, but you know, you talked about showing them uh, what success looks like. And I'll tell you, what you're showing them is that success isn't instant gratification and it's not, you know, overnight results. It's like, you got to put the work in and there's a, I think there's an issue with our current generation that seems to think that, you know, they can just pick up and start where their grandparents left off, you know, and they think that, Hey, I don't need to put in 40 years of work to get to where my grandparents got. So I think it's a really impressive message that you're sending to your kids, very inspirational. And, you know, you kind of let the cat out of the bag with your wife already getting the doctor or whatnot. So let's just jump into that because when I first heard that aspect of your journey, brother, I was like, wait a minute. So you and your wife were both getting your doctorate at the same time overlapping and you have kids and you got full-time jobs and brother, I grew up in Southern California. Okay. So I know, SoCal life is difficult, man. Okay. It's difficult to put food on the table. It's difficult to get to, and it's difficult to get out of your driveway, let alone get to work. You know what I mean? So how the hell are you juggling all of this stuff? Break it down. (laughs) You know, we, we were gluttons for punishment. You know, if we were on back to Maryland, when I, I first got out of the military and decided I wanted to do my MPA, my wife was getting her master's in education at the same time. And we literally lived by a flow chart uh, that was magnet, you know, to the, to the refrigerator, right. And who had classes or deliverables on what day right. um, we, we had my uh, younger or my older son at the time, he was about two. So we would trade off the, the household responsibilities. My wife was a full-time teacher. I was working full-time as the security director at the, the community college. And uh, it literally was like, 11 o'clock at night on a Saturday with a bowl of cereal and my laptop, just getting it done. Right. Yeah. And it just getting became, it done is the key for just getting it done. Right. <laughs> you know? And I, I remember explicitly with my master's degree, you know, I was writing a 4.0, everything was going fantastic. And I misread the syllabus and I turned in a paper in the wrong format. And the professor was absolutely ruthless, ruthless, didn't, didn't give me an opportunity to fix it and automatically took 10 points off the top of the paper. And I lost my 4.0 all because oh. I didn't, attention to the syllabus but you know it's it's okay i finished with a 396 so that's impressive brother that's (laughs) impressive but you know here's the thing right so obviously it's not common for two people to be getting their doctor at the same time that's a you're you're an outlier for sure right but even just getting your doctor even just one member of the of the of the family getting the doctorate at at a time is pretty difficult right so how do you how do you how do you 
handle that right now as far as in your current situation? You know, can you break it down to a little bit more of a granular level? Because yeah, there's going to be individuals who are thinking about going to get a doctorate. And, uh, you know, I think I shared with you one time on LinkedIn, I was just like, man, I'm exhausted and scared and tired even just thinking about the idea of trying to get a doctorate, let alone actually going through the process of, of doing it, right? So walk us through how this works. Yeah. So, so the first thing you've got to decide is whether, whether you want to do an online school or whether you want to do a brick and mortar school, you know, that's, that's a real big decision point because there's a lot of quality programs that are online virtual based. There's a lot of quality programs that, that are brick and mortar, right? It was important for me to do brick and mortar because I did both my, my bachelor's and my master's online. So I wanted to get that cohort brick and mortar experience for at least one of my degrees. Um, my wife was the same way. She did traditional undergrad. So she went to a four-year school. She got her master's online and she wanted to go back to a brick and mortar school for her, her doctorate. So that was the first component to it is figuring that out because those require different time commitments, whether you're going to be online versus a brick and mortar. Massively um, different time commitments, massively different, especially yeah. in Southern California where you got these commutes. I mean, absolutely. Well, we're, we're fortunate enough that in, in Glendora, you know, Azusa Pacific is 10 minutes that way and University of Laverne is 20 minutes that way. So we've we kind of figured it out, uh, you know, from that perspective that we, we don't have to uh, to travel very far. But uh, rolling that down, when we both decided that we wanted to do brick and mortar school, she started first. She started in, in 2019 with her program path. It was interesting because then the pandemic hit, right? So she was supposed to be going to online in-person or, or uh, on-campus in-person school. And then quickly it pivoted to, you know, kind of this hybrid online, some of the time type environment. And her cohort met on Saturdays. So like all day Saturday, like she would leave at like seven o'clock in the morning and wouldn't come home until like six o'clock at night. So it would be me with the, the boys at home while she was doing, you know, four hour class in the morning, four hour class in the afternoon, group projects, whatever all that stuff in between. And just because you go to class all day Saturday doesn't mean you get everything done. Right. It doesn't stop Saturday, there. Yeah. Right? It's, not, it's, not, it's not over. <laughs> so you've got to plug in time and, and, you know, we don't have the luxury, you know, most PhD program, traditional PhD programs, right. They, you, you go on scholarship, you get a stipend, like you're being a teacher's assistant, like that's your full-time job. Whereas doing it as a professional, you've got to maintain your, your full-time job. You've got to figure out this school thing. And then, you know, if you've got a family on the side, that's the other ball that you've got to juggle. Um, so really, you know, it was me being in that support role for, you know, the first couple of years while she was doing uh, her degree. And then it got to a point where I decided, you know, well, it's time for me to go back. And then realizing that my military education benefits expire in 2025. So I had to give myself enough space to start the program and get far enough along in it so that way I could finish before my military benefits expire and then I would have to start to pay out of pocket for my degree. So realistically, my first year in my program was my wife's third year. As she was wrapping up, I was starting in and, right. and just getting ramped. And really the linchpin to that was uh, you know, my mother-in-law and some extended family that's out here in the area because then they were able to step in, take the boys on Saturdays and do things right. when we both had commitments. That family support, right? Yeah. Absolutely. You being in the military for eight years or whatnot, over, overseas for a period of time, I don't sure exactly how long you were overseas, uh, but in that in that di dynamic or that environment, you would have had a more of a traditional sort of gender role assignments, I would imagine, right? Because you're out work, you're out in the overseas, your wife's home, taking care of everything. You get back, 
you had to make an adjustment to sort of pivot and support each other, right? Was that was that hard at all for you to become Mr. Mom, so to speak, and do that juggling act, or not really? No, it's it's been a challenge for me, right? Because my wife, organically, I mean, she's a she's a school teacher. She's got the patience of of Job. Like she can, you know. That's I joke that that's why she married me because I'm you know a little dense and hard to handle, and them teaching <laughs> skills that she has comes into to play, but it. It really is a little bit more difficult for me because I'm a type A personality, very rigid individual. You know, my military structure and training is always in the in the foreground of my mind. And rolling that back and being able to be present with the kids for a day. Sometimes children love ch- children love type A, right? <laughs> right. It's, it's a challenge for me at times, right? It's like I, I gave you a list of things to do and I told you to do it in this order and, and right. you know, you're in the corner playing with Legos. And it's like that wasn't on the list, right? So yeah. it's um it definitely was a challenge and an adjustment, and it took a lot of practice for me to get comfortable in that environment. And it's still practice because I'm not 100% there. I don't have the abilities that she has that that translate, you know, from her professional sure, job to, absolutely. Yep. to her, you know, her home ability to be able to take care of the boys. But, you know, I roll up my sleeves and, and do what I can. And if there's not things that I can do that are directly with the boys, you know, I know what my responsibilities are at home as far as laundry goes, as far as dishes, you know, whoever cooks doesn't clean, right? We, you know, we have these these different roles that kind of we've, we've fallen into that make sure that it, it may not be a straight line 50-50 split, but it's right. definitely a shared load at home. There's not an right. expectation that just because she's, you know, she's at home or she's not, you know, in school right now that 100% of the weight falls on her. We still have a balance. Yeah. And I think that's a very important point that you make, right? Because at, there's going to be points in time in your guys' work and school schedules where, hey, I can't give you 50%. I, I, I might barely be able to give you 20%, maybe even less <laughs> right. because I, I got to focus on, you know, this thesis or this exam or, or whatnot. So I'm, I'm sure it obviously takes a lot of communication and patience with, you know, each other as well as, as spouses. Oh yeah. No, we have, we religiously, we have a Google calendar, right. And it's set up for the family and anything that's happening, like before you say yes or no to anything, check that calendar, right. You consult the Google calendar, right. And if it's not on the family calendar, it doesn't exist. (laughs) So, so what's the motivation for your, uh, I get your wife being a teacher, a doctorate, it seems like naturally in line. Maybe she wants to go and be, you know, in administrative, you know, administrative role or something like that. What is the reasoning or motive for you to get your doctorate? Because, you know, I, I hear a lot of people talk about doctorates and it's just like, you know, you put in all this time and energy and it's very rare. I, I very rarely see any articles or studies that say, hey, you know, getting your doctorate pays for itself, right? Like it's a lot of time commitment. It's a lot of money. Is it, is this a, is this more of a personal pursuit or is it to send that message to your kids to be a positive example or, does, or, or is this a professional reason behind it walk me through this what, why, so why, why are you glutton for punishment you know so so we're going to go back to this type a personality right like i okay. have everything planned out to a t oh so God. Already, those guys all right i've already done my homework right at 52 years old i will have 31 years of county service counting my military time i'm gonna punch it there's gonna be time for career number two afterwards and my career number two is gonna be in the classroom i have a goal okay. to teach train and mentor the next generation of public servants. And in academia, a master's degree doesn't get you very far, right? So for our True. profession in, in yep. public administration, right? Like the MPA is the terminal degree. Like everybody sees that as like the, the gold standard, right? Yep. Uh, a doctorate in public administration, people are really like, you know, what's the, what's the value add that this thing does? It gives me the ability to switch from practitioner to an academic, Got and you. get me get me that credibility that I need to get in the classroom, you know, help 
build curriculum, bring in real world experience, three decades worth of public service and bring that to life in the classroom because a lot of faculty, and this is not a knock towards faculty, but they go nope. on that route of bachelor's, you know, master's. Do it's PhD terrible. I'll go, I'll, I'll go on and, that route, brother. I hate it because I they, want you to have real life experience. They talk to you about theory all yeah. day long, but they've never taken it out in the world and thrown it against the wall and watched it fall on its face. I love going to class, learning a theory, going out to work that week throwing it against the wall and coming back the next week and saying, Hey, that was great what you taught us, but in this operating environment, it don't work. Yeah. You know, it's funny, a shameless plug for my podcast, but one of the, one of the reviews on Apple uh, podcast reviews was uh, the things you don't, the Melissa referring to my podcast was like the things you don't learn in MPA class or MPA school, you know? <laughs> and uh, I just, yeah, I get frustrated by the classroom environment. I think education is fine. I'm not anti-intellectualism or anything like that, but man, Give me somebody who has real world skills and experience over book knowledge any day of the week. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And um, that's just that's just my, my mindset on that. Uh, I, I think it's awesome that you're looking to take your actual hard work experiences into the classroom and teach the next generation. What are your ultimate goals then now for your public sector work before you go into academia? Where would you what, what do you aspire to do become? Um, I don't think you're looking to become the city manager of LA County or county manager for LA County or like that. But <laughs> you know, if that door opened, I probably wouldn't say no to it. But the, the chief administrative officer of LA County, you know, being responsible for 11 million residents and, and talk about glutton uh, for punishment, huh? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know if that's in that's in the cards, but uh, LA County's got 40 different distinct departments, uh, 110,000. 115,000 employees across the board. Where I'm seated right now in the Treasury and Tax Collector, our department's got about 500 employees. Uh, I am in a senior management role now. You know, probably in the next couple of years, an executive role is going to open up that I see myself competing for. But ultimately, I've got, you know, about 15 good years, 16 good years left in the tank before I decide to punch it on the master plan uh, level. And I could see myself as a department director, right? You know, if, if my name was on the top of the tax bill going out to all the constituents in, in L.A. County, I don't think that would be a surprise to myself because I think I'm on trajectory to, to get there. You foresee yourself spending the rest of your career inside of L.A. County, not going out to a municipality or anything like that? Most likely. And the reason for that is because L.A. County's got its own self-contained ecosystem, right? We've got our own retirement program. We've got everything built in and the benefits that we have are are phenomenal. If I was to pivot out of LA County and go to another jurisdiction, either I've got to do all the reciprocity stuff or yeah. I've got to take a step backwards if they're a CalPERS program, right? Because Lacerda and CalPERS don't play the best together. So it would really be a, a challenge unless I wanted to bookend LA County and then just start fresh somewhere, which gotcha. you know, if the academic role doesn't doesn't work out, then maybe I, uh, I punch in at 31 from LA County and you know take my, take my show on the road to the municipalities. So when you look back now on this journey from the military into the public sector, right? One of the things I really would like to explore in this podcast was the types of benefits that are available, not only to servicemen and women who are you know, leaving the service and going back out into the, the civilian world, but how do those benefits also translate in, in to the family members of these service members? I was wondering if you can start walking us through some of the benefits or things that uh, family members should be aware of and so forth and so on. Yeah, absolutely. So when we when we talk about, you know, transitioning veterans, right, uh, it it starts where everybody thinks about the education benefits, the housing benefits with your the VA GI loan. bill, right? Yep, yeah, the, the GI bill. Um, right. uh, then your your VA home loan, right? Your your VA disability and compensation if you're you know entitled to anything from your 
bumps, scratches, dents, and bruises from your military service time. Like those are the those are the given um, benefits that that everybody needs to file for or, or take advantage of when they get out. But there's there's a lot more things when you peel back the layer of the onion that don't necessarily meet the eye, right? And everybody thinks that, you know, you have to be the veteran to be able to be entitled to these benefits. And and when we talk about educational benefits, for example, right, the the, the GI Bill, the post 9-11 GI Bill, the service member themselves doesn't have to use well, it. Well, hold on, hold on a second. So okay. is the GI Bill and the post 9-11 GI Bill the same thing? There's different variations of the GI Bill. There's okay. a, a chapter 30 GI bill, which is, you know, essentially you pay into a hundred dollars a month for the first 12 months that you're in service. You're making a $1,200 investment. And then essentially that unlocks the, the, the education benefit for the military member themselves. Okay. The, the post nine 11 GI bill was passed, um, you know, quite a few years ago, but, uh, now became eligible for anybody that did service in, you know, the global war on terrorism or deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan. That's automatically a, a benefit that you you qualify for. And then just a couple of years back, uh, there was a Supreme Court ruling to say that your Chapter 30 GI Bill and your post 9-11 GI Bill are two distinctly different benefits. So I thought I was, you know, out of luck because I used my, my Chapter 30 to do my master's degree. So I thought my GI Bill was done. And then finding out that I have, you know, 36 additional months of of benefit for my post 9-11 GI Bill. That's what's funding this whole doctorate journey right now. I'm not paying out of pocket a dime for that. So let me let me stop you right there. OK, I want to make sure I track this correctly, because I think this is very important. So you go into the military. Most most you know youngsters, they go in the military and they have the GI benefit. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you, you know. If you're jerking off and not doing your your studies or whatnot, you get out of the military and you go and get your bachelor's, right? So you you blow or you spend your GI Bill on getting your bachelor's, right? Correct. And then you're done. You can't use it anymore, right? That's a traditional route, right? Yes. And then uh, after post you know post nine eleven individuals, they could get two cracks or two bites at the apple. So if they were to do the same thing, they could get their bachelor's paid for after they left the military, and then they can get their master's, right? Correct. Okay. But then you throw in the you throw on your A type personality going above and beyond. You got your bachelor's in the military at a discount, right? Free. So then you're they got paid free. for hundred percent, hundred percent paid for. Okay, so then you you go the smart way, right? You're like, oh man, this this guy's actually got a, uh, some some gray matter up here, right? And you get your bachelor's free. You get out. You use your traditional GI and the masters, and then you still have the post nine eleven GI bill to use for your doctorate. Absolutely. That's crazy. And people it's, are not really taking advantage of it, right? No. It, there but, but is so it, much money gets left on the table. But then it goes even farther, right? Because you're saying that the post 9-11 GI Bill from, from our conversations and our pre-interview conversations, those can actually be used by a spouse or the children of a, of a veteran, correct? Correct. With a little bit of paperwork and files through the VA, you can transfer that benefit to a spouse, an eligible spouse or defer that benefit to your children. You know, yeah, it, a little, is it, it is a little bit of uh, paperwork and red tape through the VA. It doesn't take much. If you really need help with that, you can get in touch with a veteran service organization in your area or your county veteran service officer. They can help you get that done. But yeah, a little bit of paperwork and you can give that benefit away. Or if you're fortunate enough to be in a state like California, there's an additional benefit that we'll talk about a little bit down down the road here. Okay. So now on this G on the on the post 9-11 GI Bill, so you get out of the military and if you wanted to give that benefit immediately to your spouse, is that possible? Or is there a waiting period for the spouse to take advantage of it? 
there's not a waiting period. If you if you get out and, and you've got eligible time left on your, your post 9-11, you file the paperwork and then the spouse can enroll and, and get started right away. Um, for the kids, they just have to be, you know, obviously of, of age to be in school. So if your kids are in, in high school and you're not going to transfer to them for another three, four years, sure. it's possible, but you've got a little bit of gap there until they're actually in school to be able to get the school. Because with post 9-11 GI Bill, the money doesn't go from the VA to you as the, the veteran to pay for it. They pay the school directly. Okay. So earlier you were talking about how you were getting your doctorate because you were running out of time on your post uh, Post GI Bill, post 9-11 GI Bill benefits, right? Correct. So if you are getting out of the military and your kid is, say, five years old and they still got another you know, 12 years of schooling, are they going to be able to take advantage of that post 9-11 GI Bill? Or when does that clock start ticking? Or can in, you elaborate in a on hypothetical that? situation you produced, yes, because that would be thinking that somebody is a veteran that's separating now, right? right. So the reason mine has a clock on it is because back in – when they passed the forever 9-11 or the forever post GI bill a couple of years ago, when they distinguished that it was a different benefit, um, they took the time off of it. So basically there's a line in the sand date and I don't remember if it's 2011 or 2012. And if you separated prior to that, you have 15 years to use that money. But uh, if you separated you. after that line in the sand, then that legal ruling basically made that benefit available to you forever for life. Okay. So, so they anybody had, they had okay. to create a cutoff. I'm tracking you. So anybody who has the post 9-11 GI Bill now and they get out of the military, there's no time limit on it. It can be used, right? And if you have five kids, five kids can use it or is it only one kid can use it? Do you know? Uh, I would have to do my homework to figure out how many uh, children would be able to do it. But uh, if you had five kids and you wanted them all to go to school, you get your VA rating and you move to California and they all go to school for free anyway. Through the the UC or Cal State system, you mean? UC, yeah. Uh, community okay. college, UC or state school, if you've got a 0% uh, VA disability rating or higher, uh, your kids qualify for a tuition waiver uh, for undergrad in the state of California. That's pretty pretty amazing. Absolutely, because my <laughs> kids are going to UC, state school, or community college on dad for free. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know... Um, you uh you uh did recently did an interview I think with a gentleman by the name of Dr. Turner I think had the same last name as me is that sound am I misremembering I don't yep, remember the his doc, first name the doc chat absolutely the doc chat which was I was tripping out because I was like oh there's literally a podcast or a, a YouTube channel for every damn subject <laughs> under the sun right now so you were doing this uh, interview with Dr. Turner and you'd shared it on your platform on LinkedIn and and I said hey Ben's a buddy I, I want to support what he's doing so I gave it a listen. And it was during that conversation that I learned about some of these benefits that you're talking about, which, and I have kids in the military or we're in the military or currently in the military, but I, I'm oblivious. You know, I'm, I'm 46. I've got my <laughs> master's. I'm not even thinking about my kids' benefits, right? And then you said something like you're getting your master's degree and the government's paying your rent or something. And I'm like, or your mortgage. I'm like, what the hell is this guy talking about? People need to know about this scam. I don't know. <laughs> It's not a scam, brother. It's not a scam. So the, the post 9-11 GI Bill is more than meets the eye, right? Because not only are they paying tuition to your school for you to be able to attend, you are getting the basic uh, allowance for, for housing, the BAH rate at your locality. That is insane. Monthly for every month that you're fully enrolled as a student. So this is I'm insane. getting my mortgage paid for every month that I'm in college. Do people know this? Like, I just feel like I, I feel like I was living <laughs> under a rock. I'm like, why isn't everybody going to military? Can I enlist? I mean, what is going on? Why are people going to the military so they can get free college housing benefits? I, I don't, it's amazing. 
It, it is. And there, there is only a, per, a small percentage of folks that, that max out everything that's available to them. It's, it's kind of disappointing. And, and some of it has to do with, you know, some of the other issues of, of transitioning military, right. And, you know, some of the mental health issues and some yeah. of the different things that are going on, but even the folks that are aware of it, it just disappoints me. The fact that people know that they have these benefits and they just aren't interested squander, in taking advantage it. of them. Yeah. yeah, they squander it. And I, but I do have a little bit of a sad trombone. Maybe if I maybe if I get my editing skills up, I can ins- insert a sad <laughs> trombone sound. I do believe that the post nine eleven GI Bill is no longer given out anymore. Right? Is that correct? Because I think because we am I wrong on that? I thought would, I, I did a little research and I thought because we we call all the troops home from the Middle East that we're kind of done with the nine eleven GI Bill. Do you know about that? Um, I would Sorry, have I to do I didn't mean some, to throw you a curveball. <laughs> no, that would have been awesome to research beforehand. I am not familiar with that, but okay. uh, I would have to do some homework on that to find out. But even if the post 9-11 was, was, uh, was discontinued, um, there's still other programs through the VA, you know, the chapter 30 is still available. Then there's, you know, vocational rehabilitation. There's, there's a ton of other programs that are that are still available and have very similar benefits to the post 9-11. But now you gave me some homework because I'm going to have to go get educated to see, you know, what the deal is with that. Well, you know, you, you shared with me that you are currently in between sessions on your doctorate. And I figured, hey, this guy's got too much free time on his hand. I might go throw him a research assignment. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I've already got what? like two other articles that I have to write for publication. So it's cool. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell does Ben do? When he has so much free time on his hands, when he's not in the in this doctorate program, he signs up to do <laughs> podcasts with you. <laughs> oh man! So you know you're talking about the California benefits, and obviously you're not an expert in every other state, but I would imagine that most states have other sort of types of benefits of some varying quality or degree. And I mean, it's I guess the message is that if you are in the military, we're in the military, or your spouse was in the military, or your parents were in the military, and you're listening to this podcast. Be a little bit more proactive in seeking out what those options might be, right? To see what you can tap into to benefit yourself. Absolutely. And the power of Google is amazing, right? Like you you can hit Google. It's not hard to turn up a listing of uh, veteran benefits per state. Um, so it doesn't matter if you're in Alaska all the way to Texas, right? You know, you right. you can hit the internet. You can find out the benefits that are available to you in your local jurisdiction. You know, it can be anywhere from as small as free fishing licenses to like California has, you know, um, the benefit for, for college, right? I mean, and everything in between, right? Like right. I've got national, I, I've got my, uh, my state parks benefit. So, you know, because I am, am a disabled veteran, I have a lifetime pass to national parks and Department of the Interior, you know, spaces, you know, those, there's, there's so many things that are available that people just don't know are available. And that's, there's some things that are federal, there's some things that are state specific, but all you got to do is do a little bit of homework. And, you know, the, the, the list is, is a mile long. And, and we've, we've talked about this a little bit, you know, pre the show, you know, those can be great hiring incentives, right? You know, come, come check out our state or come check out our municipality. We're very veteran friendly. And these are the things that you can qualify for if you were to relocate to our state. Right. You know, in the green one, we were talking about, I, I'll pivot back to something real quick. Cause you said, you know, Google's your friend, right? Use Google. And I can tell you that when this podcast goes out, my buddy, Micah Gaudet's going to be listening to it and be like, why didn't you plug chat GPT, have chat GPT do some research for you on these veterans benefits. Right. So uh, I got to give a shout out to Micah. I'm my still buddy. antiquated. I still Google's <laughs> my best friend. I haven't upgraded yet. 
<laughs> it's pretty scary when Google's starting to get outdated, right? I know, right? Wow. See, I, and I think I've been in my academic setting, like chat GPT is a curse word. So I, I can't say that too loud in the academic world. But, you know, let's let's pivot a little bit to uh, that public sector transition and, and recruiting pub, you know, veterans and whatnot. A lot of organizations have like these tuition reimbursement benefits that they might offer to employees. I'm not very, I'm not well versed in the subject matter, having never served uh, my, my country before in that capacity. Do you know if organizations, generally speaking, as a rule, give veterans those benefits on top of their GI, almost like a, a payout, like a stipend or bonus? Or is it one of those things that is almost just pivots and only used by those who weren't in the military? I mean, I, any, any insight on that? So I think I think it matters uh, to the organization, right, whether you're paying out of pocket or not. Right. So I can go back to my experience when I when I worked at a community college in Maryland and, uh, you know, I was on the Chapter 30 GI Bill at the time. So it wasn't being paid directly to the, the school. It was being paid as reimbursement to me after the class. So I was able to pay out of pocket for my class up front, file for reimbursement through the GI Bill, then file the tuition reimbursement with my employer. And I checked it all out with my tax professional and I was completely legal because one was a, an employee benefit. One was a right. military benefit. Um so I think there are a so lot you're of kind avenues. You're kind of double dipping. Double I, know, dipping right? I know that has like a negative connotation, especially in the California pension system. So I want to be careful. But yeah, um, yeah. I guess my point would be on that is if you're in an HR department in an organization or if you're a city manager of your organization, you know, my viewpoint, and maybe I'm a little bit biased here because I have two children who have served or are currently serving in the military, but, you know, they did pay out of pocket with their service time, you know, and I, I, I think if you're a veteran and you're coming into a public organization, I don't think you should be denied those benefits. I think our organizations could be a little bit more creative if they're not giving those benefits to the veterans to find a way of compensating them with, you know, financial bonuses or whatnot to offset that. Because why should I be why should I be denied that benefit just because I already got it through another means by actually sacrificing and serving my country. You know what I mean? That's no, absolutely. I think, there's, rant. I, I think there's some validity there. Right. And even if it's not you know, being seen as like a paycheck increase, right? Even if you were to say, okay, well, the, you know, you're, you've got your VA money coming in over here, you know, do you have a, a spouse or a child that's currently in school, right? And being able to, you know, pay, pay that tuition, right? Because right. it's not the employee directly, but, you know, kind of like for like of if I was to take the post 9-11 GI bill and transfer it to my spouse, she would go to school for free. You know, let, let me, you know, pay the bill on your, your wife's tuition because, to the organization, they're not out of pocket any more than they would be if they were paying for the employee's tuition, right? I think there's right. a lot of creativity that could be introduced into that, that scenario. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be padding the paycheck of the employee right. for it still to be a positive. That's an interesting perspective. And I, yeah, I thank you for adding that. I see it all the time on my LinkedIn where there's individuals who are leaving the military and coming into the public sector. I think it's fair to say I've been a pretty sharp critic of the ICMA when it comes to some of the things that I'm unhappy about. Um, but I, but I've heard really nothing but good things about the veterans program that the ICMA offers, and I believe you're a member of that, and I believe you're a big I think you're a big supporter. And you know I like to be fair, so I'm going to criticize people and <laughs> in, in organizations when I think they deserve to be criticized. But I also uh, want to amplify and, and praise and give an opportunity platform when people are doing things that I do think is great, you know, and, and as somebody, like I said, not to belabor the point, but I have two children who serve or are serving. Uh, what do you, what do you think about the ICMA veterans program? And can you speak to that? Yeah. So I, ICMA, um, you know, started their veterans advisory committee a couple of years back in, in 2020 and, and being an ICMA member, you know, I was able to jump on that and become a member of that committee. And, 
you know, really it's to raise awareness for veterans and local government and the knowledge, skills, and ability that transitioning veterans bring and kind of bridge that succession planning gap for local government right now. I mean, you and I both know that that talent pool is, is drying up, right? right. And there, there's folks that just aren't even interested in looking at those types of jobs. And if there are qualified individuals that were a base commander or a base senior enlisted leader, you know, and have the abilities to pivot out and be a, a impactful member of their local community's management structure, why not, you know, take advantage of, of those uh, individuals? So I've been really happy with, you know, helping ICMA build their veterans programming. And, and again, you know, we can like facets of an organization, we can dislike other facets of the organization. So, you know, I'm speaking just for the ICMA vets as my slice of the pie that I've got a, a vested interest in. Um, but it really has been beneficial that they've built a transition program. They have a, a skills bridge uh, agreement that's signed with the Department of Defense, which allows military members on their last six months of active duty to actually take off their uniform, still be paid by the government, still have all their DOD benefits and basically come do an internship within wow. a local government agency. That's amazing. Um, and then, you know, we've got a pretty high success rate at the end as well of after they've done that internship, then they transition into a, you know, a management analyst, a department director, uh, you know, uh, an assistant city manager type role, those types of things that, you know, it's giving them a taste of local government. And then at the end, it's giving local government the opportunity to say, OK, you got first bite at the apple of this individual that has now proved to you what they can do. If you want to say no, they're going to take their show on the road or do you want to hire them? So kind of touching on that point, then our organization are the only organizations that are allowed to participate in the six month skills bridge organizations that have a guaranteed spot for them after the internship or can small towns throughout the country also offer this to individuals to give them a taste because there's a lot of need in small town, uh, small town, rural America and so forth and so on. It's like, hey, man, we could use a, some, a professional individual with some skills to come in and maybe, you know, do something, uh, add some value, right? It's wide open. It's wide open. Okay. The only requirement is you sign a host agreement with the ICMA Veterans Organization, right? Because that's kind of the bylaws of you're going to give this individual structured, you know, time and, and invest in them as far as, you know, giving them exposure to different aspects of your organization and, you know, letting them see your kind of your city council at work and all the different things like that, right? But the trade-off is you're getting that six months of skilled labor, essentially. Um, I have seen it where organizations at the end don't have an, a position to offer, right? They, they just allowed the individual to come and intern there. But then that's where the network of that local government kicks into play because there may not be a spot in that municipality, but maybe three cities over, there is a spot, right? So you pick right. up the phone as a city manager and you call the other city manager. You say, hey, I had this great experience for four months with this Air Force guy that just got out. He's looking for a career in local government. What do you got available? Well, I've got a supervisor for the wastewater facility available. Hey, are you interested? Yep. Let's grease those wheels and get you over there. If you're a city manager in an area around a base, this is a potentially a very powerful tool that you can use to augment your manpower. And the federal, basically, you're getting a, a federal grant to pay for an employee for six months, right? Like Absolutely. That's, a pretty, that's pretty amazing. It is an amazing subsidy. I, I'd be curious. This might be a little bit beyond the scope of this podcast, but I'm also wondering with the difficulty in recruiting police officers if there might be some sort of carryover benefit with MPs and things of that sort of nature. I don't know if that's, I don't, I don't know with how that works with licensing and 
the reciprocity with each state. You know what I'm saying? Maybe that's beyond the we scope could, of this we podcast. We could go down but... a whole rabbit hole of that because there's a reason that after my eight years as a military police officer, I pivoted away from becoming a, a cop on the outside because essentially all of my qualifications training, I was an FBI hostage negotiator. I was certified at Quantico at the FBI Academy. All of my certifications were not honored by any local agency. They wanted me to start back over at the bottom, go through a police academy again, be a pro, be, you know, do all is that, that is is that again. a state issue or a local government issue, do you know? <sighs> I think it's I, I think it's counties all the way up, to be honest with you, because there's there was no reciprocity whatsoever for any of the the skill sets that I had coming out of the military. And and that's, that's a damn shame. Even talking with current members that are in the same career field that are getting out, that, that needle hasn't moved at all. I wonder what we got to do to move that needle. I mean, maybe there's some good reasons for why that's not the case. I don't know why, but that seems to, in this environment when we're struggling to recruit police officers throughout the country, that seems to be an unnecessary hurdle or obstacle. And um, maybe 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 smarter individuals than I who are listening to this podcast, the, the two listeners that I have, maybe they can uh, talk to their state legislator or, or something to figure out what the hell is going on. Uh, yeah, that's pretty troubling. That's pretty troubling. So, yeah, but that was that was really a decision point for me because I was a, uh, a finalist when I got out of the military in Maryland. I was uh, a finalist with Arlington County uh, Police Department, and a couple different East Coast agencies. And when the rubber met the road at the very end. I turned down positions because I just wasn't willing to start all over. And you and you were you, and you were ready and willing to stay with that profession. You didn't want to be. You didn't. You weren't even thinking anything about being other than being a police officer, right? Nope, because that's everything that I had done for the eight years that I was in the military. Yeah, that's amazing. And now here you are. Funny how your life just goes off in a different direction, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh man. So let's talk a little bit more then about uh, the the actual transition from the public uh, from the from the military into the public sector, right? I'm I'm a big fan of having more military and more just non-traditional applicants being brought into the city management profession as a general. I think we need I think we need uh, some rejuvenating rejuvenation of new ideas and exposure to you know di- diversification, right? Diversity of thought, diversity of experiences, and I think there's a lot of um, a lot of powerful uh, experiences and skills and things that military individuals are taught. They learn. What do you think about? more military individuals or veterans coming into the profession? What kind of skills do they bring that you feel like uh, local governments are sleeping on or should be maybe a little bit more aggressive in recruiting? So one of the biggest things I think is underrated with military members is, you know, their ability to, to promote diplomacy, right? You take a military member and you basically drop them anywhere in the world and they can get the job done, right? So when you think about, you know, no matter what their job was, whether they were turning wrenches on an aircraft or whether they were deploying outside the wire and, and doing convoys or whatever the case may be, they have the ability to build bridges with a community that they may not even speak the same language with and still can provide value add to that community. So so that's one of the hugest things that I think is, is an underrated quality of military members because they basically can take their show on the road anywhere and still get the mission done and still not disrupt the community that they're that, that they're planted in. Um, yeah. But when we start to think about, you know, some of the more traditional or, or out of the box type skills, right. You know, communication, both up and down the chain, right. They know how to receive information. They know how to spread information. They know how to make it go parallel sideways, diagonal, whatever it takes to get the mission done. And they also understand that from being a member of the military that they're interchangeable, right. 
Um, and, and I think that when you say interchangeable, what do you mean by that? I think I know what you mean, but can you, when, when I, when I say interchangeable, meaning that you basically, you know, are part of a, a bigger machine, right? So if I'm a, if I'm an E5 and I have a certain skill set, they could trade me out, send me to a different base, take another E5, drop me, drop them into my spot. And the the machine keeps rolling. And when we think about that in terms of, you know, local government, that I, I, I feel like that's a needed skill set, you know, to kind of be that Swiss army knife that can kind of do whatever is asked of them, but at the same time, isn't necessarily worried about the title, the fiefdom, the territory, anything that goes with that local government space, right? You know, I've, I've worked in, in local government now for about 10 years and I've run across a few individuals where information is power. And if I keep it to myself, absolutely, I become the, I become right. the sole proprietor of this process if we know how to make widgets and i'm the only one that knows how to make this piece of the widget then i have more security right exactly yes yeah you know making people more flexible and interchangeable and, and being able to fill critical gaps right like i had coming out of the military i had police skills right so I can de-escalate conflict. I can deal with irate individuals. I know how to do all that stuff. I had no clue that that translated into a customer service role, right? Like I had no no idea whatsoever. So I pivoted from being a cop and then doing security type work into working customer service and property taxes. And I was like, okay, I am a fish out of water. But what goes high when you're dealing with uh, money? Blood pressure, yelling, screaming, irate, emotions, right? Yeah. And all of those tools that I had in my toolbox, I was able to put to work and realize, okay, I may not be carrying a gun or a badge anymore, but I still am doing the exact same type of thing, just in a different environment. Yeah. You know, that's a, I want to touch on this for a quick moment. One of the things I think that military individuals struggle with the most is trying to translate what they did in the military to civilian life. Because I, I see some military resumes and they're getting better over the years. I think there's been more outreach and there's more, you know, LinkedIn influencers who, who cater to that demographic and so forth and so on. But it's just like, you know, what did you just put on your resume? What, what are you doing? Like, what is that? Like, you know what I mean? Can you speak English to me? Like, Absolutely. It's a whole line of acronyms that mean absolutely nothing to whoever's reading it. It looks like it's written in code. Well, the titles themselves are irrelevant. I have no idea what this even means, like this, your, t- your job title, let alone, you know, what you did. Like, so... So I think we're, I think, I think you guys are improving in that area. I think it goes with, you know, outreach and education or whatnot. Right. But write your resume and your cover letter in a way that the civilian can understand it. Well, and that's, you know, and that's part of these emerging organizations, right. You know, going back to plug ICMA veterans, right. We're, we're able to then tell them, okay, well, if you were a garrison commander, nobody knows what a garrison is. Right. So what were you? Oh, you, you were know, Gar- Garrison. Is that that civil war? Is that revolution? <laughs> what are, what are, what, Garrison? What are we talking about? You, the war it's, of 1812? What are we talking right, about here? Exactly. But if you're a garrison commander, you're essentially a base commander. So you were responsible for a community. You probably had your own police department, your own fire department. Quasi city manager, right? So you were a city manager, right? Yeah. Like yeah. garrison commander does not translate in English to city manager. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. But you know, it's funny you say that because I, I forgive me. I have a individual who is one of my followers or connections who actually has Garrison, I believe Garrison slash city manager on their LinkedIn bio or something like that. Lance O'Brien. Is that who that is? It might be. That's, I don't it's know. Probably, it's probably Lance O'Brien. He's, he's at Fort well, Shout out to Lance. Okay. He's shout at, out to Lance. Knox. Yeah. He understands. I even, yeah. I asked him one time, I'm like, what the hell is Garrison city manager mean? He's like, oh, Garrison's like a city manager. That's why I have it. I'm like, oh, okay. That makes sense. You know? 
makes it very clear. You know? Absolutely. He is the base commander of Fort Knox. So he is responsible for everything that goes on there. And it's essentially his own little self-contained city. Well, he's learning the lessons of ICMA or whoever else is uh, giving him some good counsel. So that was awesome. Absolutely. Uh, I want to touch on something a little bit kind of sensitive. I mean, uh, you know, you know me, I'm unfiltered and I, uh, I, I don't have any problem going after some uh, taboo topics or whatnot. I will tell you that, and even I, to a little bit degree, sometimes can have this perspective. There is a sense sometimes with other city managers I've talked to you that individuals who come out of the military think that they should just automatically parachute into a city manager role. And we're like, hold up, sucker. Like, we put your time in, right? Put your dues in, right? Um, and they're probably thinking, I put my time in. I did 20 years in the military and, and whatnot, right? But do you understand this dynamic of what I'm talking? I'm not sure how to PC it up or whatever, but there's, a, there's an element of folks who are like, hey, these military guys... They think they're uh, on their own shit, so to speak, and uh, they need to like slow the roll. You know? Can you can you speak I'm to that maybe a little bit? Percent with you. So so okay. Just a, just a caveat. I got out of the military after eight years. I was an E five, a staff sergeant, right? So I was just a middle of the road, you know, suit line level supervisor. You know, just getting getting stuff done, right? So there there is a a thought out there that if you've gotten to like E seven or above, which is considered an, a senior NCO, or you've made it to a field grade officer, which is you know basically O four or above that all of a sudden you're entitled to things when you get out of the military and that, that yeah. rank or that title that you carried in the military is just going to land you something on the outside. And forgive me for all my, my senior enlisted connections and, and military connections that I have out there, but you, but you guys know that this, this follows you around that you cannot just automatically parlay that into, well, I was a Colonel in the military and I was responsible for billions of dollars of government assets. And I had 30,000 people under my command. And I'm going to tell you that I'm going to be a, the, the director of whatever. It's like, that's not, sometimes that's not how it works. And, um, amen. One of, amen. One of the things that I love the most is, is kind of that six month fellowship that, that ICMA does is because it brings them into an organization and it humbles them because at that point in time, they don't have a rank. They are an inter, a glorified intern, essentially. So you might be getting your kernel pay, right? But right now you're, okay, you're going to work in risk management for a week. And then we're going to take you over to public works and show you what public works does. And we're going to bring you around. And for some individuals, that light bulb goes on and they're like, oh, I see how like I'm not qualified, even though, you know, I think that I've done, you know, all these things to work with a council and be the, the city manager or even the deputy city manager, right? Right. Maybe I need to slow my role and start out as a as a, a manager or a department director so that way I can, you know, make my chops and, and cut my teeth. And I think that we're breaking some of that that stigma down, but I it's still healthy. It it still is yeah. very healthy. Um yeah. and, and I and I have those conversations constantly with individuals that want to connect with me on LinkedIn about you know, okay, do your homework on the organization. You know, you might be the biggest fish in the pond in your, your military world, but nobody knows a darn thing about you where you're going. So humble yourself and be willing to learn from whatever teacher appears and uh, you, you'll go pretty far. And I think the other thing too about that, Ben, is that uh, the reality is, is that leading other individuals who are in the military, right, who are used to that structure, that rigidity, so the, the, the chain of command, so forth and so on, it's a little bit different then when you're going with, you know, civilians, right. And trying to, <laughs> it's like, it's like I, a cat yeah. rodeo, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I just had to get that in there. You know, I, no, I gotta, I gotta, absolutely. I gotta, I gotta throw some hard balls, you know, I got come in high and tight every now and then. So, you know, no, uh, I, I get it completely. And it's, you know, like I said, I think we're getting better, 
but getting is still a process, right? There are still individuals that have done their 30 something years in the military are wearing a whole bunch of brass on their shoulder and automatic when, when they come out, they, they need a King and a King crown and a scepter in civilian world. And that's not how it's going to work. Hey, and I'm not some uh, American flag burn hippie here. You know what I mean? I, my kids, are, <laughs> you know, I'm pro military. My kids are in the military, but I guess got called the balls and strikes. You know what I mean? I got Absolutely. called the balls and strikes. Another shameless plug, which is kind of funny. This is completely stream of conscious. Another, another, uh, a podcast review on there says that I'm just, I'm Joe's the umpire or whatever. So I'm called the balls and strikes. Okay. And, uh, you know, we're getting up to the hour here, but I wanted to uh, pivot to something that I think is really important and that I've seen you working on a, another little side project or passion project. And that is, uh, this, uh, this organization about, you know, building brotherhood and community, uh, called here brotherhood. I believe it really resonated with me because I've been looking at it and it's just, like I said, resonated with me a little bit. And one of the reasons why it's resonating with me is because I've talked about building community for city manager, right? One of the, one of the three main goals I've talked about is building city manager, uh, city manager community or whatnot, building community for public sector executives, as well as also uh, helping with the personal professional development and then also advocacy on behalf of the city managers of professional, right? And so my feed has been blowing up with this here brotherhood thing. And I was wondering if you could maybe break down and tell us what it's all about. I, I don't know. I don't think you're an official ambassador per se. You're not in a leadership position as I understand it. You're just sort of a believer, I think. Though my only contact with the organization has been through your post and I've been sort of impressed with what I've seen. So why don't you just break it down for, for us? Absolutely. So just, just to lay the groundwork on it, social media can be the best thing in the world and the worst thing in the world. There, there can be a lot of toxicity that comes with social media and the haters and the trolls that show up. And, and really what the Here Brotherhood is attempting to create is an organic community targeted towards men to support men's mental health. And, and let me stop uh, you there. When you, when you, the here brotherhood, what does that mean? Here, what we talk, what so talk about? So I'm, I am here to hear. So okay. here, H E A R E, is is the first word, and it is he, with ear in the middle. It just basically means a man that's willing to listen. Okay, H E A R E, here. Yes. Okay. So, so what that means is that. In the men's mental health space, right, there's this a, a lot of stigma out there that we just have to suck it up, su- suffer in silence. You know, we just had to put on that mochismo and just do life, right? And it doesn't matter how much we get crapped on or how much stuff we have to deal with. We're just supposed to suck it up and just keep going. Be a man. It, be a man, right? You know, buck up, pull up your bootstraps yep. and just and just get on, right? And really what this grassroots community and it's hundred percent organic at this point. There's, there's not, you know, venture capitalists or funding or anything at this point involved in this. It's really a couple of guys that got together and said, there's no space to create a support media app that exists currently. Right. So what they did was essentially created a support media app for men. Demographic target is about 25 to 55. Right that don't have to carry that baggage of being a man by themselves. It's a free space to be able to celebrate wins, share vulnerability, connect with other dudes, and really not be judged for, you know, what's going on between the ears and, you know, just kind of put it out there. And and you'd be surprised how many dudes you find that are just trudging the same path that you are and having the same thoughts that you're having. And it's, it's not as easy as it seems, you know, like we see everything on social media that looks like all butterflies and rainbows. Right. And, Everything's the and best version of ourselves, right? So it's the best manufactured, curated version of ourselves, <laughs> and it's absolute horseshit, right? Right. So so I've been leaning in really hard to this because, you know, I've got my own 
my own demons that I've wrestled with, with my PTSD and some of the different things, you know, my, my challenges that, that I have. Um, and just, I, I really, this piqued my interest and, uh, I, I joined up with them. I am a mentor within the app. So I engage with folks, you know, I take DMS and just engage with folks that are struggling or help to celebrate guys that are want to share a win and, and don't want to put it out, you know, on their regular social media because they, they're afraid they'll get poked at or whatever the case may be. But sometimes a win can just be like, look, my, my 14 year old got lippy with me and I didn't punch him in the mouth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. those, those are real things too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and um, I think the other thing that's important to talk about this with respect to the brotherhood and, and whatnot is, you know, we're in this really crazy time right now where it's almost like, I'm going to go on another rail here where I might just piss off some people, but you know, we're veering off into toxic feminism. You know, it's like, I don't, I'm not going to put you on the spot there and have you, I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm, you know, I'm not trying to conscript anybody to my battles. Okay. But uh, you know, it's okay to be a man. All right. It's okay to be a man and men should have their own spaces to be able to interact and fellowship with each other. And uh, we got some really, in my opinion, some destabilizing forces at work right now that are tearing down men and, and, and male spaces and whatnot. And I think the pendulum has swung too far in the in the opposite direction. I think I think there, it was needed for there to be a correction, but I think it's gone to one extreme now. And at the end of the day, in my opinion, male bonding and brotherhood isn't about cracking open a beer and hanging out the bar and shooting pool. Okay. Like that's just, you know, whatever, whatever stereotypical idea of brotherhood or, you know, you know, playing grab ass or what, whatever it is. Right. We got to realize that we can have more sustaining and I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for is, but we can have more fulfilling and constructive. Yeah. It, with Intentional, each other. Right. right. Yeah. Right. And it's like, we don't have to put on these masks or these, these the facades of, I'm, I'm Mr. Badass or I'm Mr. Tough Guy or I got everything together. It's like we can actually be real, right? And say, hey, I'm struggling with this or I really want to do this. Or, you know, men and women, we bond completely differently, right? And I would say that men generally don't bond very well uh, in, in general, right? As far as healthy and healthy ways of bonding, right? Right. Uh, because we have these fears of being vulnerable, you know? And I think this all kind of relates to what I've been doing a little bit on this whole journey that I'm on with the city manager unfiltered podcast and on the LinkedIn is, you know, I've talked about city managers feeling alone and those in the public sector feeling alone or isolated at times. And I do feel like uh, the more I post, the more I put myself out there, I'm getting responses back from individuals who are grateful that these conversations are having and feeling like they can unload on me and some of the things that they're thinking or their fears or their concerns. You know, they just got fired or they're on the verge of being fired and they're looking for advice and counsel. And, and I, you know, I just think it's, it's like I'm 46 years old, you know, I'm not 26, I'm not 16. I don't have time for this dumb shit anymore. Like I, I just want to, I want to have real relationships. I want to have real connections with people. I want to be helping people whenever I can. And I just, th that's why I think the here brotherhood really appealed to me when I was looking at it from afar, because I'm like, man, that's something I'm trying to create or in a, in a sense for city managers and public sector executives. So that's why I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that and give you a platform to communicate what you're doing with that, with that organization. Absolutely. And it just, it, you know, it allows for a little bit of validation, right? Just so that way, you know, you're not crazy and crawling out of your own skin and you're not the only one. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's funny you say that because some of the feedback I get is like, man, it's nice to know that I'm not the only one going through this. You know, I post an article about some crazy situation happening in some state and they go, man, I've, I've been through that or I'm so happy I'm not the only one going through that, you know? So, 
Yeah, man. I just, I'm really a big fan of, of what you're doing. One is you're always pushing the ball forward and advancing yourself, right? You're always trying to improve yourself and make yourself better. But beyond that, you're also constantly trying to help other people be better. And I just think you're uh, a model uh, for what others should, you know, strive to be right. And, uh, I'm happy that we had this opportunity to converse and discuss these, the things that you're working on. And I know that you're very much willing to, um, put yourself out there and help others. So I assume that if someone's thinking about going through a doctorate program or they're in the middle of it and they need to pep talk, I'm sure they can reach out to you. You would love to help them out as much as you can. Right. Absolutely. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm more than happy to uh, set up a call, get coffee, whatever we got to do. If I can share some experiences and help you not step into some of the same potholes that I did, I'm, I'm game. Hey, Ben, uh, you're an inspiration to me. I appreciate you dropping some knowledge in this podcast, things I didn't know about, wasn't aware of, and I think a lot of the people who are listening aren't aware of. And uh, thank you for sharing some time with me. And uh, I don't know if you have any final words or parting comments, but hey, it's been a blast and thank you so much. Absolutely a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Joe. All right. Ben Effinger, he's uh, with LA County, working his way up the chain, going to be Mr. Professor in a few years at the doctorate he's uh, going after. And uh, thank you all very much for listening. Uh, This is the City Manager Unfiltered podcast, a podcast by a city manager for city managers and other public sector executives. Until next time, uh, later. Later.